the brain is a pattern-making machine. And in order to survive, if you've been surviving up to this point in your life or your business, it wants you to keep doing the same thing over and over again to ensure that physical survival. But as Albert Einstein said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expect to get different results. Hello and welcome to the Upflip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Freeman. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with serial entrepreneur, author, and consultant, Barry Moltz. As the host of the small business radio show for 13 years and counting, Barry helps business owners grow with weekly insights and expert interviews. His books, Bounce and You Need to Be a Little Crazy, share anecdotes and lessons from his many years as an entrepreneur. His 2014 book, How to Get Unstuck, he explains 25 common reasons companies get stuck and how to fix them. And that's the topic we're going to dig into on today's episode, why businesses get stuck and how to get out of that rut and back on the road to growth. Barry, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, could you just kind of give us a a brief overview of of your background and how you got into your current consulting work? Sure. I mean, I was with IBM most of the 80s, my first 10 years with a large corporation. And then I read this book about how you could run your own small business. And um, I really enjoyed it. I thought, God, I can do this. So I left IBM. And first, I went to go work for one of my clients as head of sales. And when he fired me a year later, I said, you know, Alex, this is the time for me to go to my own business. So in my first business, I went out of business. In my second business, I was kicked out by my two partners a couple weeks before my first son was born. I started my third business two weeks after my first son was born. And I was fortunate enough in 1999 during the internet bubble when you could sell anything, I was able to sell that business, pay back the $1.3 million I owed the bank. And my wife told me I got her back just about the same time. But the, the condition was that I wouldn't start any more businesses because she had been through, as you can imagine, too many ups and downs. So I started writing books and I've written seven books at this point. I did an angel investment fund for about five years. And so mostly I work with small business owners now to get them unstuck because most folks have enough success in their small business, but aren't quite where they want to be. Yeah, as we mentioned in that intro, we're going to talk about one of your seven books, How to Get Unstuck. So I'm curious, what was the motivation to actually sit down and write that book? No, I see a lot of small business owners. They don't either hit it really, really big or they don't go out of business. They have enough success that it kind of sort of pays them as a job. But there's a couple areas that really get, they really get stuck. And two of the primary areas are really in marketing and sales. They don't know how to keep their pipeline full because they say they hate sales. And the second thing really is in leadership and Management, no one ever taught them to manage people and get things done through others, which of course is imperative if you're going to scale a business. So what are the roots of those issues? Like, is there an underlying problem that connects those two things that causes business owners to get stuck? Well, none of us are really trained in any of these areas. I was really fortunate when I went to IBM and I became a manager. For a month, they send you away to management school. It was better known as charm school. We learned a lot of these things about leadership management. We're never really taught to lead. Just because you are a good doer, just because you're a good individual contributor, doesn't mean you know how to manage and lead people. On the other side, most people fear rejection. Or a lot of folks think, Alex, that just because you build it, people will come. And that certainly is not the case. What are some of those? I'm curious, too, because I think the term stuck, I'd like to kind of like dig into a little bit further, because I'm curious what the difference between being stuck and it's been a hard quarter in the business. What are the differences there? And how do you determine, oh, I might be in a rut here that I need to fix? 
Yeah, I think that people that are stuck can identify the what the rut is. They're not really sure how to get out of the rut. They're not sure the change that they have to make. I mean, a lot of us go through business and there's ups and downs. You get some bad breaks. You didn't get the deal you wanted or you lose your largest customer. But then you kind of sort of know what you can do to remedy that. These people, these small business owners really don't know what to do next. And so how do you identify what that first step might be? I guess maybe stepping back and how do you identify what the actual real problem is so that you can make the change? Well, I try to find out really where the pain is. I mean, my most current book is called Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you know you need to make. And I really, when researching that book, I realized how hard is it for people to make changes? And they only make changes if they're an incredible amount of pain. So I try to figure out where is the pain in the organization? Is it coming through that I can't find new customers? Can I not keep the customers I have? Can I not find additional staff? Do I lose my staff? I, as the founder... Am I doing everything? Is every decision have to come through me where it's more like a hub and spoke organization rather than some kind of hierarchical thing? So I try to dig down and really see where the pain is, because if we don't identify where the pain is, even if we find the solution, no one's ever going to implement it. Is it really all a mindset issue? I wouldn't call it mindset. I think that people have really good intentions, but they've never been trained in a lot of these areas um, or they don't believe in marketing. So in my third business where I ran a technical software catalog company, a lot of the vendors that used to advertise in our catalog were scientists. And we would always talk to the scientists about how you've got to go do marketing. So we finally convinced one of the scientists for their organization that you have to do marketing. So he hires Joe on a Monday at his marketing manager. I call the next week to see how Joe is doing and Joe is no longer there. So I say to the scientist, what happened? He says, well, we tried marketing for a week, but it didn't work. They just don't know. And people don't have, you know, have a lot of skills about perhaps creating a product or providing a service for a customer, but they don't know everything that goes around actually running and having your own business. How do you overcome something like that, either as a consultant working with somebody or if you're sitting in your small business and you're trying to overcome that trapped thinking for yourself? Well, I think that you have to try to learn what you don't know and admit that you could use some help. (laughs) Entrepreneurs, we have very, very large egos because that's really what it takes to start and run a company. And if we've had some success, we're like, well, no, no, I don't need any help or I'm only going to bring people in that just mimic, you know, whatever I think. And so we really have to be open to learning and maybe doing it a different way. And perhaps I, as the founder entrepreneur, maybe I'm not always right. A reminder to our listeners that if you are looking for for some more guidance on maybe cultivating the right business mindset, you can listen to our interview with Cliff Ravenscraft, the Mindset Answer Man, which is episode 39 of this podcast. Now, Barry, I'm curious there as well, because you know we're kind of talking about this falling into some traps here of maybe not understanding soon enough that a change needs to be made, or when you're stuck in a spot where a change does need to be made, and you're maybe frozen with some fear there. What is stopping business owners from following through on changes that they know they need to make? Well, I always say that it's not really the business owner's fault, your biology really fights against it because the brain is a pattern making machine. And in order to survive, if you've been surviving up to this point in your life or your business, it wants you to keep doing the same thing over and over again to ensure that physical survival. But as Albert Einstein said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expect to get different results. So your brain wants patterns, especially as we age, our brains get lazy. If we have to learn something new, it takes a lot more brain science 
cycles to do that. So your brain really doesn't, Alex, want you to change. It just wants to keep doing it. I mean, think about when we used to commute to work. I know for me, I used to get in the car and 45 minutes later, I was at work. I had no idea how I even got there. My brain was on autopilot. Now trying to go to work a different way, you have to work a lot harder. The second thing is there's a lot of fear around it. I know the devil I know right now. You know, the expression, fear the devil I know than the devil I don't know. Somewhere along the line, if you're going to make the change, you have to go leap into that abyss and you're not quite sure what's going to happen. And there's a lot of unknowns in the entrepreneur's life as it is. The only time that people make the leap is because they positively can't because of the pain, Alex. They got to move. They can't stay there. The island is on fire. If I don't jump into the water, I'm going to die. Are those fears ever a good thing for an entrepreneur? And how should someone manage their fear to make sure they're driving growth rather than hindering it? See, I believe that it's okay to be afraid and go ahead and do it anyways. I spent 20 years practicing Sado Karate and I was always afraid every single time I stepped in the ring and had to fight someone. And what my instructors told me was it was okay to be afraid, but do it anyways. It's that old Dale Carnegie expression that says, you're not going to make the butterflies your stomach go away. We just need them to fly in formation. If you can make friend with your fear and realize you're afraid and go do it anyways, that will really be the start of it. And again, one of the key parts, Alex, is to take a very small step on the way to change. People visualize these changes as some sweeping things. And sometimes we tell the stories that way, but most people that are able to affect real change do it in patient, iterative, small steps to get to where they want to go. Can you talk about what some of the, the more common entrepreneurial fears might be and maybe give us a tactic to overcome each one? Sure. I think the biggest fear is I'm not going to have enough money to pay my bills or to pay my employees, right? People are worried about cash flow. And the ironic thing is that no one, almost no one ever looks at their cash flow statement every single month or don't look at their profit and loss statement or their balance sheet statement, which would have the answers to your questions. Am I going to have enough cash flow to pay people? I think that's one of the biggest fears. Another fear, obviously, is losing your current customers, not having any newer customers, losing your best people. Those are huge, huge fears that people have, and it goes on a daily basis. Now, entrepreneurs tend to be risk takers and are told to take risks, take that one step, jump off the burning island, but not every risk is a smart one. How does an entrepreneur learn to tell what risk is the right one to take? You know, it's a really great question because I always say as entrepreneurs, if we knew the real risk we were going to take, Alex, there's no way we would go out and start a business. It's just (laughs) way too risky. You know, part of it is that we're just too passionate. We're just kind of blind. The key is to try to take small risks that if you're wrong, you can recover from them. You know, I always visualize it as a sailboat going across a very windy sea. I mean, they're making small adjustments. They're tacking to the left or the right so they can go to where they want to go, their destination. If you can make small adjustments and if you're wrong, you can recover and not make any fatal mistakes, chances are that you will be able to get to your goal. Now, a lot of people say, well, when I fail, you know, there's always something to learn. I always say, well, sometimes when you fail, there's absolutely nothing to learn. The most important thing is try to learn what you can from things that didn't work out. Have a pity party, cheer the darkness, feel bad that things went wrong. But after 24 hours, you got to let it go and try something else to see if you can get close to that goal. How does long-term planning and and kind of a long-term vision enter into this calculus for risk-taking? 
I think you have to think about, especially probably once or twice a year, where do I really want to go? What do I really want to make happen next year? And then that's the strategy. And then during the year, all the tactics try to get you there. And again, there's a lot of competing tactics, a lot of competing things for your time. And you have to sit back and say, if I work on this or one of my people works on this, is it going to get me closer to my strategic goal for the year? So I think too often people get together maybe once a year, they put together a strategic plan, and then they never look at it again. And I think that twice a year or three times a year, you got to pull it out to see, are you really going? And I think you should set two or three strategic initiatives for the year, because let's face it, that's all people can really keep in their head. Are there any specific things that those strategic initiatives should cover? Or is that like really a very business specific question? Well, I think you have to think about what is really the mission of the company? Why are we doing what we're doing? This is very important for keeping you know people on board because the mission of the company can't be, I want to make money for the owner. It's why are we all getting together? What difference are we going to make for somebody or something else in the world? So how do your strategic initiatives further what your mission really is? It's all got to be wrapped together that people can rally behind. Going back a little bit briefly to this concept of getting stuck and then getting unstuck, are there any specific skills or habits that an entrepreneur can develop that will prevent them from finding themselves in a place where they feel stuck? I really believe that you need to get some kind of outside perspective, whether this is in the form of a mentor, paid or not, or an outside board, paid or not, because being a small business owner, it truly is very lonely at the top. And it's hard to really figure out, are you stuck or not? There's that old expression is, it's hard to read the label when you're inside the glass. So you need to get outside perspective, people that can give you an honest assessment. And many times people that work with you, Alex, just can't do that because they're afraid. On the business side, are there anything that, that an owner can implement within the business itself, like whether it's a system or a strategy that can minimize their risk of getting stuck? Well, I think you have to look at all the important phases of your business. So for example, you got to review your financial statements on a monthly basis. It will tell you a certain story. You have to do some type of budget forecasting. How are you doing against that budget? How are you doing versus last year? You also should look at what's the cost for me to acquire a customer? What does my pipeline look like? What's the lifetime value of a customer? So you know, what's my average retention rate for employee that comes and stays with me? So you can look at a lot of these metrics and measure yourself against them on a quarterly basis to see if you're losing ground or you're getting stuck or you're just staying in the same place. You know, I realize as I ask this question about, you know, are there systems that one can put into place? Is there danger in the systems themselves that you can find yourself in a rut? Because maybe if you're checking these reports on a regular basis, you know, maybe you're being lulled into a false sense of like, I am preventing myself from getting stuck. So I guess what can somebody do to kind of shake it up and make sure that they're not letting their systems lull them into a false sense of security? I think you have to understand what other people in a similar business, how they're doing. That's why being part of a small network group of other CEOs, perhaps in your industry or going to trade shows, understanding where the industry is going or just reading publications will really help you measure about how you're doing compared to everybody else. But again, if you're in a business where let's say you're doing $3 million of sales and you're taking home a million dollars, maybe you're happy. Maybe you don't care to change because there's no pain. I'm taking home a million dollars. It's more than I ever thought I'd make. I'm good. To change just for change sake doesn't make any sense, right? There's got to be a reason. There's got to be pain. 
So this is going to bring us to a portion of our show that we call our Fan Blitz questions. These questions come from our YouTube community. You can go to youtube.com slash upflip, join the community, and pose questions to future podcast guests. So we're going to try and get through about six questions in about 90 seconds. We'll see how we do here. Let's do it. So the first question comes from Alfonso Sandoval, who'd like to know, if my niche is flooded with competitors, what's your suggestion to get unstuck from just trying to survive? Well, I think that's the the question is, why are you just trying to survive? What value do you add for your customers? If you're trying to compete on, on price or you're selling a commodity, that's a really bad strategy. What do you do different? What is your secret sauce compared to your competitors? The Dolce Musica is asking, uh, if money is limited, what are some free or low-cost ways to increase business? Most low-cost ways to increase business is to ask your current customers for referrals or get involved on social media and answer questions in a group that has the problems that your company solves. At this stage of success, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I'd probably say stay IBM. It was a lot easier than being on business <laughs> on your own. <laughs> so go become a doctor or a lawyer. It's a little bit easier. That's what I would say. Get a professional degree. But if you want to have a lot of fun, come run a business. How would you feel about working for someone who knows less than you? I would have a very hard time with it because I always say if I could hold a real job, I would. And that's the reason why I run my own companies (laughs) because I can't work for anybody else. Tell me one thing about your business that you wouldn't want me to know. Wow. One thing about my business that I wouldn't want you to know, I would probably say how manual so many of the things inside my business are when they seem to be Mm. automated or part of a process. Last one here. What are some of the unwritten rules of your workplace? I think one of the unwritten rules of the workplace is really respect. No matter how upset you are, whether you want to do the blame game, no matter what kind of bad day you have, you got to show the other people respect in the organization because they're most likely working just as hard as you are. Nicely done. You did much better than many of our other guests do in that regard. That is going to do it for our Fan Blitz questions. Again, these come from our YouTube community. You can go to youtube.com slash upflip and pose questions to future podcast guests. A few more questions from me while we've still got you here. Going back a little bit to planning ahead. Is there a downside to planning ahead? And what are some of those risks of over planning and how do you avoid those? Well, there definitely is a downside to planning too far ahead because market conditions could have changed, right? You could have planned ahead all you wanted for the beginning of 2020. You had no idea that COVID was going to come and shut down the economy. So while I believe it's really great to plan ahead, at the same time, you've got to be nimble enough that you can change things on the fly. And I think that's the advantage that small businesses have. So as those plans go awry, how do you get the business back on track? Either after a mistake in the planning, perhaps a failure has occurred, or just you've been blindsided by something like the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think you have to go back to what's really the problem, right? Is it a revenue problem? In other words, my customers have changed what they want or they can't buy what they used to be able to buy or there's a new competitor in the marketplace or somehow the cost shifted in the marketplace because now it takes me 12 weeks to get something where it used to take me one week because of supply chain. Or is it now that employees cost 10% more or inflation is running at 9%? So you have to diagnose what's really holding the business back and try to come up with solutions that will address those particular problems. But again, it takes time to actually implement these solutions. So a lot of people implement a solution one week, it doesn't work. Then it'll implement a second solution the second week and a third solution the third week. And you got to be careful about that because A, usually it takes more than a week to implement a solution. The second thing is the people in your company will probably get whiplash. Now, when it comes to goal setting, what's the best way to set and achieve revenue-based business goals? 
Specifically, if I want to achieve revenue-based goals, I really believe you should put together a budget the year before, probably November, December. And to when you report out your financials every single month, see how you're doing against the revenue and expense target. And in the middle of the year, if you're way above or way below those targets, you can change them once during the year, but you shouldn't change them every month, higher or lower them just so that you're on budget. But if you put a goal out there and you announce it publicly, this is what it's gonna do, you have more of a chance of actually achieving it because you talked about it publicly. Now, revenue obviously isn't the only indicator of a, of a business's health. What are some of the other metrics that a business owner should be tracking and why? Well, I talked before about cost of acquisition, you know, cost of a customer. What does it cost to acquire a new customer? If you sell a product for $200 and it costs you $1,000 to acquire a customer, that's probably not a good deal. You also should understand what is the lifetime value of a customer. Once you get that customer, how long do they stay? So for example, if you sell something for $200, but it costs $200 to acquire the customer, on average, that customer stays five years, then maybe it's worth it as far as a cost of acquisition because it only costs you $200 versus $1,000 lifetime. You also understand what your retention rate is. How long do employees stay? What does your turnover look like? I think you should also be looking at from a customer experience, looking at your net promoter score, survey your customers and see really what they really think about you. And of course, keeping track of your financials is really important. What's my cash flow look like? What's my profit? it look like, what's my quick ratio looks like, my assets divided by my liabilities to see if I can pay my bills every month. So there's a lot of things you should really be keeping track of. That'll really help you run your business. Those are all great because I do have follow-up questions on essentially everything that you just said. So let's dive in. We'll start at, I guess, cost of acquisition and how marketing plays into that. So what role does marketing have in that growing and healthy business? And what besides increasing sales is important to keep in mind in terms of your marketing plan for your company? Well, you got to think about what is marketing. I really believe that you actually can't sell anything to anybody. You have to be there when people are ready to buy, when people have the pain and when to solve the pain. So marketing makes sure that when that person is ready to buy, they hear about your company. They put you in the maybe pile. You're one of three companies that they're considering because if you're one of three companies they're considering for their purchase, chances are you're going to win 33%. If you're not one of three companies they're considering, your chance of success are really 0%. So what marketing does is it identifies those people of all the suspects that are out there, people that should be interested in what you're selling. It identifies the prospects, the people actually saying now, yep, I've got the pain and I've got the money to solve the pain. I want to talk to you more about your product or service. That's what marketing does. And the more that you can keep that pipeline full of prospects, the more chance that when a customer leaves, you'll have someone else to replace it. Now, in a lot of small businesses, the problem is they only do marketing when they have no business. But as soon as they get business, they go off and they execute that business. They stop doing marketing. And then when they you know, have no sales, they do marketing again. So it's kind of like this up and down motion. And it's really problematic because then their business never grows. Yeah. Can you talk about what some of the more important pieces or qualities of a marketing funnel would be to support that long-term growth? Well, I think you have to come up with an avatar about who your customers are. You should be able to describe your customer is a, you know, 45-year-old, divorced, white female that lives in the suburbs and has two kids. I'm just giving whatever comes to my head, right? You should be able to describe 
who your optimal customer is, what pain they have. Do they have the money to solve the pain? If they don't buy from you, what else do they do to solve that particular pain? And where do those people live? Either where can you reach them? Where can you get in front of them? So you really have to spend some time thinking about who your actual customer is. I mean, if people are a married couple, they shop for a house. The real customer is really the woman because studies have shown she makes the final decision if they're going to buy, make an offer on that house or not. Is there a really common marketing mistake that stymies business growth that a lot of business owners are making and what should they be doing instead? Yeah, unfortunately, what they do is they spend a lot of money for a very short period of time and really don't give a marketing strategy enough time really to find a result, positive or negative. So what marketing is always about is try to test out a specific thing to see if it works or not. If it works, put more money behind it and try to expand it. If it doesn't work, and take your money and try to do something else. People switch marketing strategies too quickly. And for a lot of things, it takes two or three months to figure out where that strategy works. I mean, it used to be when you couldn't advertise online, when you're advertising in magazines, a lot of people would put in one ad and see if it worked. Well, you can't do that. Repetition is really what's important. Have you ever heard that expression, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail? Well, as soon as I become, as soon as I have a need, all of a sudden I realize there's all these people around me that have been selling me that stuff. So for example, when I first came to Arizona for the winter, I wanted to buy a motor scooter, right? And when I started looking, I realized motor scooter ads were all around me, right? (laughs) And I never even noticed them until I had a need for it. So it's important to keep marketing so you can be there when people are ready to buy. Don't cut it short. Now, I think one common solution that a company can think to turn to when they feel stuck is to rebrand either the full company or their marketing efforts. Is rebranding a solution to becoming unstuck or is there a specific time when rebranding is the right move? The question is, why are you rebranding? Um, I keep thinking of why they changed Dunkin' Donuts to Dunkin', right? I don't know, maybe because they saw things besides donuts. Now, Kentucky Fried Chicken changed their name to KFC for good reason, because things being fried kind of got a bad rap. So Meta decided to go with Meta instead of Facebook because they wanted to focus on the metaverse. You have to have a real reason to rebrand because there is brand equity uh, in whatever you're selling. Or Maybe something went sideways in your business and you have to rebrand because you want people reminded of a failure that you had. So I think there's a lot that goes into why you're doing it. I mean, I've had a radio show for 13 years and I about five years ago, I rebranded my radio show, the Small Business Radio Show, because I wanted to show up in small business searches. That's why I did that. So that was really the reason behind that rebranding. Is knowing the why the key to doing it the right way? Or do you have other advice for making sure if you do rebrand, you're doing it the right way? Well, I don't know what the right way is. I, I think the right way is to, you know, gradually do it. So, you know, so for example, perhaps you start out saying you have the original company name and then you say it's an affiliate of and then you're your new brand and slowly over time, your new brand takes over. I mean, there's just so many factors to try to figure into it, but you should realize that most brands have a good amount of equity and you got to be careful what you do with that. One of the other metrics you mentioned that you should watch is your retention rate with your employees. So I guess I want to talk about some some hiring and employee and management type stuff now. So I guess to just kind of kick that conversation off, what advice do you have about making sure that you're hiring the right team in the first place? 
Well, I think that a lot of people make mistakes, uh, Alex, where they hire for only skills, not attitude and culture. I believe that you can, people that have the right attitude and fit into your culture, you can teach them anything. Now, I don't mean that you shouldn't have the skill that you're trying to hire for. It doesn't make sense to hire someone for being a bookkeeper if they have no idea what you know debits and credits are. But at the same time, there's probably a lot of people that can do that job, but you got to really see, do they fit into the culture? And one of the ways you do that is you make sure that in the interviews, they meet other people in your organization and you get feedback from the interviewee as well as your current employees. Do you think this person is a good fit? Now, when I say good fit, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're just like the people you have, but they're complementary with an E. So it starts off with hiring the right people and not just rushing to hire someone just so you can have a butt in a seat doing a job. As you find yourself, if you're a business owner in that spot where you do feel stuck, how do you determine if it is maybe issues on the team that might be the problem that you then need to solve in some way? Well, I think you have to look back and what is the problem? In other words, I really believe that the leaders should make the strategic decisions and everyone else in the company should figure out how things get executed. So is it a problem with the strategy, which is your responsibility, or is it a problem with how they're getting executed? Or have you not put processes in place so people can execute more easily? You have to really look at and see what the problem is before you decide, is it you? Is it them? Is it the marketplace? What's really going on? In a lot of cases, sometimes the issue may not be those frontline workers, but it is somewhere in the managerial level. How do you identify that? And then how do you step in to fix the issue if it is something at the managerial level? And these are obviously managers or people you've invested significantly in in a lot of cases. So how do you go about fixing that problem? Well, I mean, listen, if you have two teams, they do the same thing and one team is doing well and one team's not doing well, you got to figure out, is it the people or is it really the manager? And if it is the manager, have you not provided enough training so this person can really be successful or does that person just really need to leave? Especially if that person's been there for a long time, it's very difficult, I believe, in people to change the way they behave or operate in an organization. And for a lot of times, you know, change is really necessary. And I think that's hard especially if someone's been with you for a while. Now, before we leave the employee conversation, I want to ask about customer service. I certainly believe that customer service lives at all levels of the organization, but what does excellent customer service look like to you? You know, I never like to call it customer service because I think it's kind of an old-fashioned name. I like to call it customer experience. And what we have really have to understand is that what people value above all else, especially these days, is the experience they have consuming your product or service. There's so many studies that show that for an outstanding customer experience, people would pay up to 50% more if it was fantastic. So you have to keep thinking about what kind of experience is the customer going to have each and every single time they interact with your organization. And a lot of people are so busy bringing people in the front door, trying to sell new customers. They don't think about the experience that customers actually have either consuming your product or after they've consumed your product. And it's a real problem, I think, especially for American companies. Is there anything that kind of like lived in the zeitgeist of customer service, customer experience conversations that is, you know, received wisdom from the past that actually doesn't apply anymore? Well, I think that most people early on would say that two things. One is that customer service is just 
common sense. It's just natural. It's not. You really have to be trained for it. And the hospitality industry trains a lot of people around customer service and customer experience. The other thing is customer experience just does not have today, doesn't have to do just providing more people. It used to be to provide an outstanding customer experience. You go to some of these fancy hotels. They had a lot of people helping you. Now there's a lot of technology that can really make an outstanding customer experience and it doesn't really take a lot of people. So I think that thing has changed. Now, I've just got a few questions here about exit planning and selling a business. So I guess the first question of that is, what are some of the signs that it's the right time to sell your business? The right time to sell your business. Well, I think the first question you have to ask yourself, do you still have the passion to come every single day to do what you're doing? Because if you've lost the passion, it's probably time to sell your business. The second thing is you got to look at the market. So for example, I do a lot of merger acquisition work in the educational technology space. Two years ago, it was a much better time to sell your business than what was now. Two years ago, I could sell your business for three times what you get for it now. So you also have to figure out, is it the right time to sell your business given what's going on in the marketplace? And is there some strategic buyer that's interested in buying your business now? That's also the key because if you can find a strategic buyer, you get more money for your business. Now, this also obviously ties into exit planning ultimately. So what are some of the key components of building an effective exit plan for a business and when should you make your exit plan? I think you have to think about what are you in this business for? Or is it just a lifestyle business where it's going to support you and your family for as long as you want to do that? Are you going to be passing this along to your family? Or are you really using it to build it up and sell it and then take the money that you get from selling your business and go do something else? So I think that decision should really be made. I think you should evaluate every single year. Am I still in the same business of selling it or keeping it for my family? If you could pick the one thing that people take from this interview, what would it be? Oh, there's just so many great nuggets, Alex. How can I just pick one thing? It's true. That's why I'm making you do it, so I don't have to. (laughs) I think people have to understand that effective change really happens in very small steps. Don't get discouraged in making changes in your business or evolving in the marketplace. Make small changes. See if you succeed or fail. Just don't make any fatal big changes that you can't come back from. I'm going to make a slight adjustment to our standard last question, which is normally, what's your favorite business book and why? I'm just going to add the caveat, the book that isn't one of yours, but then we'll give you a chance to plug your books in just a second. Well, there's really two books that I'd like, if I can mention two. One is a longtime favorite by Tim Sanders called Love is the Killer App. And this is way before Facebook or any social media. He really said that socializing with people and caring about other people, that was really going to be the most important currency in business. And I think he's still right today. The other one is a newer book that came out last year by Zoe Chance called Influence is Your Superpower. It talks about as a business leader, how you can influence other people. And she came up with what I think is the best question if you want some someone to actually do something for you, you ask the question, what will it take? And just wait for them to answer. And I thought that was brilliant. So Barry, now where can people find out more about you and where can they get all of your great books? Well, you can get all the great books on Amazon. You can find me on all the social media under Barry Moltz, except for TikTok. Of course, my website, which is www.barrymoltz.com, B-A-R-R-Y-M-O-L-T-Z.com. That is going to do it for this episode of the Upflip Podcast. A reminder to our listeners, make sure you leave a review of the Upflip Podcast wherever you're listening, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It really helps us grow our audience and provide even more high-quality business knowledge. Barry Maltz, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alex. 